I'm going to write about food and sex for the rest of my writing days because they are two lenses through which I see the world and through which I see most human interaction. Welcome to Let It Out. I'm your host, Katie Dalebout. This week, I got to interview one of my favorite authors, Stephanie Dandler. She's a novelist, a memoirist, a screenwriter. She wrote the international best-selling book, Sweet Bitter, and created and executive produced the TV series of Sweet Bitter, which I loved. And her work has appeared in the New York Times, Vogue, Paris Review. And her latest book, Stray, is a memoir that I genuinely loved so much. Her story and her style are so unique, which we talk about both in this episode, as well as many of the themes in Stray, like inheriting trauma and boundaries and relationships and motherhood. And we talk about writing and her process. And I really enjoyed speaking with her and this episode. I'm excited for you to hear us talk about creativity and the importance of poetry. And it was a genuinely lovely conversation. So before we get to that, just a couple of announcements. We're doing a book club. I wanted to read fiction for this book. So we're doing The House of Deep Water by Jenny McFarland. It just came out and it actually takes place in Michigan, which is where I'm from. I am not super far into it, but I'm far enough in to know that I love it and I love her writing style. I haven't read fiction in a really long time. I read a lot of nonfiction and it feels really good to be engrossed in this story. And I think you guys would really like it and it's going to make for a really interesting discussion. So we'll be doing a, she's going to be coming on the podcast, the author, and we're going to be doing a book club and Jenny, the author is going to be there, which is super cool. So I'd love for you to come. You can just email me if you want to come at info at let it out with three T's.com and we'll add you to the little group. It's free and just fun and just something I wanted to do for this summer club that we're doing with Let It Out. So make sure you're following Let It Out on Instagram for more information on little things we're doing to add a little bit of brightness in a really heavy year. (laughs) I hope you guys are doing okay. Enjoy my conversation with Stephanie Dandler. Definitely read Stray buy Stray, support an independent bookstore, follow Stephanie on all of social media. She shares a lot of poetry. I really love her and I'm excited for you to hear this conversation and I'll talk to you at the end with another announcement actually. This week's episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a wellness company that I've loved for a very long time. I've even had the founder Taro on the podcast. They're known for their delicious mushroom coffee. I've been starting my day with their ground mushroom coffee with lion's mane, and I really enjoy how it allows me to focus. (laughs) Mushroom coffee is more than just coffee. It contains lion's mane and supports productivity and creativity during a busy day. It's been really helpful for me. I'm writing a new kit actually, and it also includes chaga, which is the king of mushrooms. 
Chaga is a particularly great one right now because it supports our immune system and helps it to maintain its function, which is always helpful. You're probably thinking, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? But I can guarantee you it tastes just like regular coffee, not at all like mushrooms. I actually really love the taste. Mushroom coffee is also really easy on my gut and doesn't leave me feeling jittery or crashing after. All Four Sigmatic products are organic, vegan, and gluten-free. Every single batch is tested in a third-party lab for heavy metals, allergens, bad bacteria, yeast, molds, pesticides to ensure their purity and safety. So you know that you are getting the highest quality coffee and mushrooms possible. Best of all, Four Sigmatic stands behind their products unconditionally with a 100% money back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. I've worked out an exclusive offer for Let It Out podcast listeners to receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. Now is the perfect time to try Four Sigmatic's best-selling mushroom coffee or any of their delicious products. Just go to foursigmatic.com slash Katie and use the code Katie at checkout. That's K-A-T-I-E. That's foursigmatic.com slash Katie. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash Katie to receive 15% off your order. Thanks, Four Sigmatic. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people. Explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and get lost in creativity. Skillshare offers memberships with meaning. With so much to explore, real projects to create, and support fellow creatives, Skillshare empowers you to accomplish real growth. Skillshare offers creative classes designed for real life with all the circumstances that come with it. These lessons can help you stay inspired, express yourself, and introduce you to a community of millions. At a time with so many important conversations happening in our world, your voice is more essential than ever. Explore classes to unlock your creativity for social good. Skillshare has classes on freelancing, entrepreneurship, interior design, cooking, graphic design, photography, music, so much more. You guys, there's literally um, like so many classes on there. One Skillshare class that I'm really excited to take is creative personal writing with past podcast guest, Ashley C. Ford, who I love. It's such a great class. And one of the exercises, she has you revisit a song from when you were young and use that as a writing prompt. Mari Andrew, another guest that I've had on Let It Out, also has a class called Drawing and Self-Discovery that I'm really excited to check out next. Skillshare is incredibly affordable, especially when compared to other really pricey in-person classes and workshops. The annual subscription is less than $10 a month. I love how accessible it is. And best of all, for us, it's even more affordable. Start with two months free of a premium membership and explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash let it out. That's two months free at Skillshare.com slash let it out. Thank you again, honestly, so much for doing this. I'm really excited to get to have a conversation with someone who made something, a couple things that I really love so much. This is really cool. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. How have you been? How has quarantine been? What an interesting time to have a book come out. And how have you been feeling? You're expecting a baby. Tell me everything. (laughs) Yeah. What a big question. 
how have I been? That is one of those states that fluctuates throughout the day. It's not a linear, (laughs) not a linear answer. I will not be recommending to my friends that they publish a book and have a baby within the uh, same few months. I think that both of those endeavors ask for a certain level of groundedness or stability and the world right now is not offering that. So it's interesting. It's really, I seem to be asked to surrender. That's all I can think as far as what does this time mean and why is it in the middle of a pandemic and there's riots and helicopters all around us in Los Angeles and I'm so pregnant. And I think the answer has to do with surrendering your expectations. You know, three months ago in early March, I went on a vacation that I wrote about. It became clear during the vacation that we were in the middle of the pandemic and things like shelter in place orders were issued and we came home. But when I left on that vacation, I had a 16 city book tour planned and my book was coming out a different day and we ended up having to move it because of printer delays and I had different jobs lined up. My life has changed so completely and yet the book is out, my family's healthy, the baby's coming And so you really kind of have to give up the rest. Are you having a similar experience? Not the baby and book part, but the surrender? Yeah, I think everyone is. I I was saying to a friend, it's especially at the beginning when we were all warming up to this situation, it felt very primal of like, well, we just all have to be people with each other. Like a lot of the things that we leaned on. I, I live, I guess, I don't even know what tends to use, but I guess I lived in, I'm in the process of moving to LA. I was, I moved out of my place in New York and I was traveling when this all hit. I was in Australia and then I was meant mm-hmm. to just miss the winter and be in LA for March and April, but turns out I'm moving here. I'm shipping all my stuff from New York. So yeah, it's an interesting time to be between places. It's an interesting time to do anything I'm gathering and you have to have a lot of surrender, which I think is actually what we have to have in life, but it's just very clear in this. <laughs> Absolutely. It, I was saying to someone, when I got pregnant with my daughter, who's due in five weeks, she was unplanned. She was due the same day that Stray was supposed to come out. Oh and, and I mean, we had to remove the date for that book so many times. And that was in early November that I found out. And I said to my husband, I am being asked to be a different person. (laughs) The universe is asking me to let go of control. And none of this had even started yet. It was already just the wildness of, I'm pregnant. I have a 10-month-old. I wasn't even sure that I wanted to have a second child. Like, how do accidental pregnancies happen to adults? I feel like a teenager. Um, And this is permanent and we're going forward with it. And so the whole, my whole year seems to be the universe underlining, you do not have control and you do not have control. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm excited to see what you eventually write about this time because I'm sure (laughs) there's a lot. I want to go back to the book that I 
have been like kind of carrying around and like rationing. Like I was really slow to let myself finish it because Stray is so beautiful and smart and I'm just dying to talk to you about it. I would love to start with talking about the structure and how you decided to structure it this way. I think I heard you say maybe in another interview that you use note cards. Is that something that you had done before? I hadn't. I definitely did not do that with Sweet Bitter, but it is something I, through my work in television, where everything, every emotional beat of a story is put on a note card in a room with a group of writers and tacked up on a wall. And you move the beats around until they make sense. You move beats from different characters' stories and you intertwine them. And it's a way of outlining and a way of making sure that you are able to continue momentum on multiple stories. And it was really helpful for Stray because I knew that it wasn't going to be a linear memoir insofar as I was born and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Because I do the memoirs that intrigue me and that were so influential to me are the ones that are about memory and are structured in a way that mirrors the content. And if the book is about memory, it should be structured as memory is whether that's through multiple timelines occurring together or through more elliptical connections between scenes, meaning one scene does not flow perfectly into the next, that there's a gap there that the reader has to take a breath and reorient themselves and do a little bit of work. I knew that that was how I was going to write this book. So It was really important to have note cards that related to 2005, which is the year that my mother had a brain aneurysm and the year we found out that my dad was uh, a crystal meth addict and his life would fall apart. And then I also needed note cards for 2015, which is the present tense of the story, which is the year I moved back to California, where I'm from. And I was also engaged in a very unhealthy and destructive affair with a married man. And I also met someone new. So that story had its own concerns and it needs its own conflicts and peaks and valleys. And then there's also early childhood. Then there's also my adolescence. So there was a lot to keep track of. I don't think I could have written this book without some sort of guide, some sort of map. When you were in that year, when you were in 2015, did you think or know that you would write about it? And did you, were you writing during that time some, I think you actually write that you were writing and pitching essays and and doing other work, but were you journaling at all about the things that were happening as to perhaps write about it later? I had no plan to write about it later. I do journal and I, was writing autobiographical material, but I was working on a novel that I had sold Knopf and they were very interested in knowing where it was. And it took me until 2017 to admit that I was actually writing a memoir. And even then I didn't call it a memoir. I was too scared. 
the expectations of memoir seemed way over my head. And by that, I just mean that the grandeur of certain journeys that they have such like clear A to B trajectories and they end with a recovery or a rock bottom or a car crash. They end in kind of this epiphany where life is not the same going forward. And I didn't have such a big ending. My realizations in the book are about ongoingness and small changes that I've been able to make to my life. And so I didn't want to call it a memoir initially, but it took years. And all that time, I'm writing about my parents, and I'm writing about California, and I'm writing nonfiction for the Sewanee Review, and I'm writing about my dad's drug addiction for Vogue, and still could not imagine that there was a book that I would ever expose myself in this way or that I would ever call myself a memoir writer. It just, I mean, it was so, so outside of my comfort zone. I think, I mean, there's so many things that I have dog-eared and I want to, you know, like put pennies into your jukebox of of calling out with you. But you picked up on one of them, which is that a major theme in the book is this, you know, very human relatable even though it's different circumstances but the experience of inheriting our parents damage and repeating it and that's just such a common human experience that doesn't really end and you talked about that and i love that it is about process and about progress and about growth and about not feeling alone and there's just so much beauty in this book even in the pain with and that is much to your craft and i'm i'm curious how open were you with people about the things that were happening while they were happening i mean you talk a little bit about your friendships friendship is your friends are characters in this book and you talk a little bit about it but especially when you were younger and in your like teenage and adolescent years were you did you have anyone to talk to about your family at that time I always had teachers. I'm very lucky that teachers have historically, especially English teachers, have taken me under their wing, even when I was such a terrible student in certain instances. And I have been in therapy off and on since I was a teenager. And so I've always been able to narrativize what has happened to me to tell you a story about who my mother was and who my father was. I just didn't, I stopped doing it in my twenties. It didn't feel like a productive coping mechanism. As far as I wanted to be a high functioning adult who lived in New York city, who was responsible for herself. And I was not in the habit of inviting people in to my past, or even exposing my trauma, I wanted so badly to be okay. And I started with my therapist that I'm still with when I was 27, right after I got married the first time, and realized, as one often does when they start therapy, that my coping mechanisms were actually 
repressing mechanisms and were keeping me from feeling things that hurt me, but then that was coming out in other self-destructive ways, whether through substance abuse or infidelity or high-risk behavior in general. And so that work opened me up, but I still, I mean, I had people that read this book who I worked with on Sweet Bitter, the television series, and I sat with every day until 2 a.m. who were like, what? These are your parents? This is your life? I mean, how how does one bring this up? (laughs) It's not a story, though I know how to talk about it. It's not one I'm totally comfortable telling, which is part of the reason I didn't think that I would write a memoir. Yeah. I want to go back to your process a little bit because I'm curious what it felt like. Like at the, I, I heard that you went away to write it and I'm wondering if you wrote it chronologically and how did it feel at the end of the day and did your motivation change? Like, did you come to dread it if you had to write a really painful part or did it feel like you wanted to let it out or get it out of you in a cathartic sort of a way? Hmm. It hasn't been cathartic yet. It did feel urgent. The daily act of writing was very unpleasant. And yes, I absolutely dreaded certain scenes. To answer the first part of that question, I had the note cards up in an order and I went away. I took my family with me and my five-month-old brand new son. And I said, I'm going to give myself three months to write a first draft of this book. And we're going to remove ourselves from our life. We're going to sublet our house. I'm going to move multiple time zones away from anyone who might even try to text me. And I started with the first note card and I went to the second note card, but I had already mapped out how the book was going to work. So a lot of the work, the structure work was done. So when I say that I wrote this book in nine weeks, what I mean is I opened up a document, I started the document, I finished it in nine weeks. Some of those scenes I had written five years ago, some of them I had written two years ago. All the way that I wanted the book to work was tacked up on the wall in front of me So really, the book took years, like any book. (laughs) Yeah. But that draft, the shape that it is in now, came out in one kind of breath. And I think that you can feel it from what people tell me about reading it, as far as the urgency and the momentum. It wasn't something that I wrote the first third, and then I took a year off, and then I came back to it. And it, it is as if someone is sitting down across the table from you and going to tell you this story and you can't leave until they have finished. At least that's what I wanted it to feel like. Mm, Yeah, it does that so beautifully. It's also a love letter to California, I think, and your home state. One thing that I loved was this concept that the love interest in the book calls desert eyes. Can you define those? And how did you decide to have... California's history be a backdrop for this? So I had been writing about my father's addiction since 2015. And 
I had moved back to California at the same time, and I began visiting my mother on a regular basis for the first time in a million years. And that was very complicated and bringing up a lot of ghosts and memories and things that I was too busy in New York to ever think about. And I started writing those down. At the end of 2016, Matt, my husband, who is the love interest in the book and not my husband in the book, took me on a trip to see a piece of land art in the Owens Valley. And I came across Owens Lake, which is no longer a lake. And I started to research it. I asked him questions and I became obsessed with the environmental disaster of Owens Lake that is also the reason that we were able to build Los Angeles. And the short story on that is that in 1913, we built an aqueduct from the Owens Valley, one of the largest lakes in California at the time. And we siphoned off water in order to help develop this city because we have no natural water of our own. By 1920, the lake bed was completely dry. It is the number one site of dust pollution in the United States and ranks very high on the Environmental Protection Agency's list of disaster sites. The dust is carcinogenic. It is responsible for not only the destruction of the economy in the Owens Valley, but for health problems far beyond the Owens Valley because the dust travels. I mean, you can't make this up that we stole water to build golf courses and swimming pools and this illusion of fertility and wealth that we prioritized a dream above the long-term consequences of what that dream might mean. And it was when I started writing about the Owens Valley that I started to, I started to design this metaphor that California was a place of trauma and my parents were a place of trauma and that in both cases, the surface, underneath the surface was hollow. And once that metaphor solidified, the kind of instability and uncertainty and volatility of of California's landscape and that of my childhood, I knew I had a book. Before that, remembering my parents, I'm like, this isn't a book, this is therapy. (laughs) A book needs something larger, I think, than just revisiting memory and analyzing other people. And California really put me on the journey that I'm on now, which is a reckoning with my past and my present and trying to continually have hope for the future. And the second part of your question, the love interest took me to Joshua Tree on one of our early dates. All of our early dates were camping, which, you know, questionable. (laughs) But um, I love when you're like, turns out I love camping. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because we went camping a few days ago and it was, and I'm so pregnant 
And I just looked at Matt and I was like, I think I'm done forever. (laughs) (laughs) You need your desert eyes. I think you've pushed me too far this time. (laughs) We have a toddler. I'm huge. Um, But in the beginning, I definitely loved camping with him. But he takes me to Joshua Tree. And I had been there as a child, of course. But I realized that I spent my entire childhood thinking that the desert was ugly, that it was barren, that there were no plants, no animals, no variation in the landscape. And he introduced me to this idea of desert eyes, that if you let yourself sink into a place and let your lens on it shift, you will notice how vibrant and alive and colorful And I really thought the desert was one shade of beige in my mind. And now I go there and all I can see is the flora and the dusty greens and the the pinks and the, the rusts. And it's such an incredible landscape. And how could I have gone at that point 31 years without really seeing what was around me? And that is something that I'm exploring throughout the entire book, being back in a place that I really took for granted and would have described as homogenous. I'm like, oh yeah, California, I'm from there. Blue skies every day. It's not true. I mean, it's, it's, we have June gloom and we have terrible rains and there's frost in the winter and wild greens in March. It looks like the Pacific Northwest. And then everything turns golden by the end of June. It's, it's really so full of these micro movements. But if you're not paying attention, you'll never see them. And it was a good lesson. I mean, it helped me fall back in love with this place. Mm. Yeah, it was really cool to read this book. I was excited to read it because I love you and have been following you for such a long time, but I didn't even think about or realize that it would be so California. And it was interesting to read it as I'm in the midst of an accidental move here. And yeah, I I think- Have you lived in California before? No, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Michigan. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I I just kind of ended up here and um yeah, it all feels very exotic and, and new to me and, and far away. Yeah, I can imagine. I think that there's a kind of strange emptiness when you come here from New York. The emptiness of the streets and the lack of public life. And then it is an adjustment to see how rich Los Angeles is as a city. I think I grew up thinking about it as a city of intellectual poverty or being a one about one industry. And it's just, again, it's not true. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I kind of thought it was just the pandemic, but <laughs> probably a little <laughs> bit of both. Desert Eyes kind of reminds me of, this is not even close to that part in the book, I don't think, but you have this beautiful paragraph about presence where you say, like most people alive, I'm interested in presence, in escape the feeling of time, an infinite substance loaned to use in shocking infinite amounts. Time to me is synonymous with death. Presence cures time. I'm present when I'm in a stage of love, hyper alert, 
the world is hallucinatory. My limbs jumping as if they've been asleep for years. I am my best, most observant self. It goes on and it's so beautiful, but it, I feel like desert eyes or that paragraph about presence or noticing being in a new place, there's something about knocking us in trauma can do it too, I guess, in writing or creativity can knocking us into the present moment is it's kind of like intimacy. Like I feel like I want it and I fear it in equal measure, you know? I think desert eyes is something that takes the time that it takes. You can't actually force it. It is something that will come to you if you're paying attention and you can be present enough. I think most of us are looking for shortcuts. And I think that sex and drugs are often those shortcuts to presence, to changing your headspace, changing your point of view. And the work of it is so slow in comparison. I think it takes a long time to train yourself to be patient. Yeah. Where are you with presence now? What helps you when you're out of it to come back? my God. I mean, I have so many funny meditation things that it sounds indulgent, but it's actually just a coping mechanism for being pregnant for, you know, half of my life, it feels like, and not being able to self-medicate the way that I normally do. And I mean that whether it's a glass of wine or going out dancing or taking a Xanax and calling it a day, I, I'm forced to be in my body all the time. And so I meditate every day. I have since I was pregnant with Julian, my son. I just took a meditation class for labor. I went on a meditation retreat in February. And then the other thing that really helps not to be cliched about it is my kid because he demands it. He demands 100% of my attention. And I can feel when I want to check out or just check my phone. And I look at him and I, it's so much easier to fight that urge because mm-hmm. I, he's growing and changing every single day. I mean, if you blink, you're going, you're going to miss it. And this is everything anyone says about motherhood is totally cliche because it's just, that is the experience. But being with my son really helps. I actually, I can't imagine if I was not pregnant and didn't have a kid during this pandemic and this period of time, I'd be so fucking drunk every day. And I fantasize about it. I'm like, oh my God, I would start drinking rosé at 3 3 p.m. Maybe I'd start microdosing mushrooms just to like see what happened. And no, (laughs) I have none of that. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, like knocking you back in and like being grounded in your body in this very primal way. Oh my God, there's so many, I'm, I'm so aware of the time because there's so many things I'm excited to ask you, but I have to skip ahead between a million profound lines in your book and talk about the food references in Stray because I don't know if you remember this, but I'm the one that noticed one of them and put it on my Instagram. And then you told me what recipe the cabbage was. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. (laughs) That was me. (laughs) 
Marcella um, has Anne's smothered cabbage. I've made it since because I started yeah. instantly craving it after. But I'm not sure if I noticed them because I always noticed food references or because they were written so beautifully and clearly and with so much precision or because I knew your history with food. But either way, I, I just really loved them from this cabbage recipe that I made inspired by you. When you talk about the ripe avocado being this optimistic omen for you. Mm -hmm. And then even just I remember this moment where you like unbutton your pants, I think, kind of drive home on your birthday and Mm -hmm. just little things like that. I really loved and kind of felt like an homage to Sweet Bitter and your restaurant days. Do those stand out to you? And do you have any advice about writing about food or why to include those details? The food moments do not stand out to me they food is so much a part of my life and I used to say when I was doing press for sweet bitter that I'm going to write about food and sex for the rest of my writing days because they are two lenses through which I see the world and through which I see most human interaction and they're the two things I probably think about the most maybe I probably don't think about sex as much as I used to just given you know my extremely large body and childcare, again, all the normal cliches, but those are obsessions. And I think that your obsessions funnel into whatever you're working on. And so to imagine that I would ever write a novel or an essay or any piece actually that didn't have food as one of its central images, I'm thinking even of the nonfiction that I write for the Sewanee Review. I wrote a piece about my pregnancy and I called it stone fruits because it, there's an image of peaches and apricots and plums that plays throughout the piece. And as far as like why it's important, I think that again, bringing a reader into the scene, it's not enough to put in throwaway details. They have to be meaningful right? Like the avocado being an optimistic omen. There's another way to write that scene where you're like, and then we had an avocado and it was delicious, but that feels like filler detail and it can feel generic. Whereas food written about with a point of view actually brings the reader much, much closer. Food as a way of getting story across, mindset, character, I'm always looking for that consciously or unconsciously. And in Sweet Bitter, it was actually the point of the entire book. But in all of my writing, I think it doesn't even take premeditation. It's Poets do it. It is just, it's one of those triggers. It brings the reader into the story and into their own body. Mm, Yeah. Can you tell me more about the avocado being, being an optimistic omen? Oh my God. I mean, when you're living in New York, you like have to be an avocado whisperer. (laughs) They're abundant here, but it also is such a hit or miss experience and a slightly rotten avocado with black spots is so wildly different in taste than a perfect avocado. And one that is too green and too hard is really watery and slightly bitter. And so I think if you grow up here, I know my sister feels the same way. Like if you get a perfect one, you take a photo of that shit, you send it to your sister and you're like, look what I got. And you're like, oh my God, 
Oh, <laughs> yeah, I love that. You're going to have a great day. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that makes me so happy. What role does food play in your life now that you've had this experience in the restaurant world? And does it still play such a big role in your life? And I mean, I know it's a pandemic right now, so it's a bit different, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and, and how you feel about the restaurant industry now with everything going on. No, food does not play the same role in my life, actually. And I think it's because I haven't been drinking for so long that my relationship to it, and because I've been so busy, frankly, after Sweet Bitter, I started touring for a year and then went right into making the television show and then gave birth four days after we wrapped season two of the television show and then started Stray five months after I gave birth, I don't get to spend the time that I spent in my 20s seeking out ingredients and, oh, I really, I want lemon verbena from this specific farmer so I can make lemon verbena ice cream for a dinner party I'm having on Saturday night. Like I'm, that's not the phase of my life that I'm in currently. My husband does most of the cooking and I work all day, especially in the pandemic because he's home with Julian and I have still had to work. And so I find that I miss it terribly. I miss the sensuousness of that life and like the kind of devotional quality of it, the worshipful, tactile experience of being close to food and seeking out high quality ingredients and watching the seasons change through what you have on your counter. But there's also a part of me that may have moved on from that. And it's very, it's very indulgent. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think indulgences are beautiful and necessary. But the time that it takes, like I would rather in a way, I'd definitely rather be reading, definitely rather be writing. (laughs) And I would also rather be with my son. And I think that's only going to increase having two kids. And so I'm excited to teach these children about food, but I don't know that I'll ever get back to placing that kind of attention on it. Maybe I will. I hope I hope I do. I was reading Fanny Singer's memoir. Have you heard of that book? It's called Always yeah. Home. Yeah, I just heard of that. I just someone else just mentioned it. It's so gorgeous. And she's Alice Waters' daughter. So she's had the kind of upbringing that you can only imagine. And I do aspire to some of that, but I, I don't see the way there to build an entire life around food. Um, And I definitely, I find I eat out a lot less in Los Angeles, which is good and bad. I miss restaurants terribly. And I am close with so many people that own restaurants who are suffering right now and trying to figure out how to get themselves back on their feet and what the future of dining will look like. They weren't a huge part of my life before the pandemic, my life here. But that's, again, all of this is a phase, all of it. It's the phase of having very small children and the phase of being in the middle of book promotion. It will change again and again and again. Yeah, totally. I mean, watching Sweet Bitter, I, I mean... 
it really years ago like changed my relationship to food and eating which is very complicated and I was living in New York and it really opened me up to something that was very exciting just by through you and I hadn't caught up on the second season and I watched it in quarantine and it was like really painful because I just so wanted to be in community and like go out to eat yeah. and, and miss it made me miss New York so much oh my god I've been missing <laughs> New York like crazy and I think that that is a result of the pandemic because I don't normally miss it at all yeah. but I have just had like a longing for a hot summer night in the East Village oh. strangely which but is very much about my own 20s and the crush of people out on the streets and the full bike lanes and the honking and the like, oh, the, yes. the closeness of every everything and everyone, the density. I have been really, really missing it. Yeah. Oh man, me too. And just, you describe that so viscerally. It's like, yeah, I fully feel that. What was it like to show up on set for sweet bitter and see this world that you had crafted and lived in some way i mean it is an artistic high that i will probably never get over and i built it you know i picked the color of the chairs and the walls and the plates that we were going to use in the restaurant and i had opened restaurants before and it really felt so similar to that menu testing looking at food styling menu printing, choosing covers for those menus. We built a restaurant and it could have been fully functional. If you put a gas line in, we had small, we had flame, but they were propane tanks. Not If you put a gas line in, we could have cooked dinner for 200 people. Wow. And our food stylist and our consulting chef used the kitchen as a kitchen. One of the refrigerators fully worked. <laughs> like yeah. it, it was just all of it was yeah. like walking into a dream. And television's complicated and artistically you have to make compromises that you never expected. And the concerns of television are not as pure for me as the concerns of literature. But walking into a room that is like something you dreamed, I can't compare it to anything yeah it's unreal so cool I want to go back to talking about writing a bit um Mm -hmm. and I have a couple more questions about Stray but you wrote this piece a while ago where you said like most writers I live in fear of disappearance can you talk a little bit about that line yeah I think that after you have lived a certain number of years, you become hyper aware of how quickly our emotional states overtake us and then leave us, especially in relation to love or joy, how temporary it all is. And then that echoes this sort of more morbid concern, which is how temporary all of life is. I think as you become older, you become, you become increasingly aware of how faulty memory is. And I think that those of us who spend time writing down the details of our day, how it felt, where we were, who said what, we're all terrified of 
losing it, of forgetting it, of it meaning nothing, signifying nothing, or of not being able to recall it before we can assign it meaning. And I think a lot of writers, we write like we're in a hurry, like there isn't that much time left, at least a a lot of writers I know. And it is an acknowledgement of death, but it's also an acknowledgement of here I am so in love with this person that I can't imagine spending a single second away from them. And yet I know that a month from now, I could never see them again. It's that you build up that knowledge. You don't have the knowledge necessarily when you're 22. I think you can have some knowledge of loss if you've experienced grief, but you don't have the kind of like the knowledge of the dullness of it, right? That we just like keep accumulating these experiences, falling in and out of love, being overcome with sadness, crying by ourselves in our car again and again and again. And the fear that maybe, maybe it doesn't land anywhere. Like maybe it doesn't accumulate to meaning or to change, but we just keep circling and that's all it's ever going to be. And so we write, we write it down and we try to preserve it in some way in case it might mean more, I think. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about like being noticed, you know, I think writers notice, we notice ourselves and we notice things, but maybe wanting to be noticed in my, in my writing, I, I journal a lot. And I wrote this, this book about journaling. And I think I heard you, I'm curious about your journaling practice that you mentioned. And I think I heard you when you were interviewed, when Sweet Bitter came out, that you had a writing practice throughout your twenties while you were working in restaurants. Was that your journaling practice that you still have now? Are you writing now? I write less at the moment. I write letters to my children. They have email accounts and those are, they're less diary entries. They're less personal journaling and more like time capsules of where we are as a family and what we've done and eaten and what new tricks they have. And my daughter is still in my stomach, but there's so much to tell her about Mm the world that she's already lived through with me. The same with my son. I started writing him when I was pregnant with him and he and I lived in New York by ourselves. My husband and I were long distance because I was filming the show. I always talked to him about our time in New York, just the two of us. And so that is a way to guard against the forgetting. But I do have a handwriting sort of automatic, unconscious journaling practice that if anyone ever saw these notebooks, I would be so mortified because they really are so terribly superficial. I have another notebook that I work on writing with, and that notebook is full of quotes and working out scenes and books to read and character descriptions But my journals are, you know, I feel sad. I feel tired. Why is this happening again? Full of these petty frustrations. And you read them and you're like a moron wrote this because it's the same thing every day. Is it kind of like your morning pages? It is kind of like that. They're not always in the morning. 
they used to be always in the morning before Julian, but now I'll do it whenever I can. It's just, it's unproductive. It's unproductive writing. All of the writing that I do right now is productive. I'm working on two television series. I'm doing promotion for Stray, which requires a lot of writing. I started work on a new novel back in January. This is all productive work writing. Mm-hmm. And I just like for there to be a spot where it's for no reason except itself. That's really cool and interesting to hear. What would you say you're doing so many, first of all, that's very exciting that you're doing so many things. I'm excited for all of them, but (laughs) what would you say to a writer right now or someone wanting to write or wanting to write something like Stray? We'll start with that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think what I, someone who has been writing a lot of personal essays, but I just feel like my story doesn't really feel worth telling and definitely not this time yet writing is something I want to do and have has been something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And yeah, I would just love any advice you have around that. The number one reason people don't write nonfiction is because they don't think their story is worth enough. I struggled with that every single day of Stray. This, you know, this isn't that bad. This isn't notable. This is so self-absorbed. No one will care. And I don't even have, I know rationally that I don't have an ordinary story. Melissa Phoebos has a great essay about how it is revolutionary just to tell your story, whether it's about sexual abuse or disappointment or how you became an artist, that more voices is more like that is worthwhile in and of itself that doesn't mean that everyone is going to relate to your story or that the world necessarily will validate and say oh my god this was very 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 important the opposite is definitely going to happen but that there are readers out there for it there are they're just it, it's true for anyone who wants to set their story down but i think that that is the biggest thing to overcome you need to black out the rest of the world you need to not think about how navel gazing or narcissistic or petty or sensitive you sound like and part of that is blocking out your own shame mm-hmm. you need to not be conscious of shame because it will keep you from getting to the true parts of your own story. If you're ashamed of how you behaved in a relationship or the way you treated your mom, you will never write about them honestly. You will never be able to get there. Mm. And so part of that is a mental trick of no one will ever see this. <laughs> I'm just doing this and I can, I can take it back at any point. But the other part of it is training yourself to think like both a human and a writer. And the writer knows the story that needs to be told and the human doesn't want to tell it because they are ashamed and it hurts them and it scares them. If you obey the writer, you will write a book. The writer knows exactly, is like, this is a good story. This is how the book should work. This moment that you feel like is rock bottom and is so tender to even think about, let alone put words to, 
that's the point of the story. Mm. And that comes with practice and trusting yourself. But I, I really try to honor the writer mm. because the human in me would never do anything. I'm too scared. I live my life a hundred percent in fear and the writer in me really doesn't give a fuck about what I'm scared of. Yeah. I think the, that honesty is so felt in, in your work, but there's also so much craft. And I, I wrote down what you said earlier about how a book needs something larger than just that honesty. And in your case, you had the California backdrop and, and this beautiful structure. And you mentioned a few moments that were impactful for you in your writing in, in high school with a teacher and in Catholic school. And you mentioned Kenyan, but I was wondering if there's a couple things or anything from your education or your MFA program or whatever stands out from a craft perspective that you could also offer on the other side of that honesty? Two things. The first is that there is no substitute for reading. There is no MFA program or education or anything that you can buy that is a substitute for reading deeply and reading, looking for the lessons, looking for what you are being taught, reading to solve your own writing problems. And the second part of that and why I think that there is a case for MFAs, although I think that they are so monstrously expensive, I have a hard time recommending them to people. What it did for me is it kept me accountable, that I had taken out this insane loan to give myself two years, that I had taken all of these risks in my personal life to put myself there. And that's accountability. That's, I have to do something. Like, what, how would I live with myself if I came out of this and had a short story at the end of it? I think that a lot of people who are trying to write treat it like a hobby and it lacks deadlines and structures and having real skin in the game, which is, I'm going to be paying back these loans for the next 20 years. <laughs> so I might as well write the fucking book. I also think in my program in particular, which was an incredible program, you see a lot of 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds whose parents are footing the bill for the MFA. And I think that you can see the way they're approaching their work differently. It just doesn't have the same sense of urgency. And that to me is when you fall into the trap of oh yeah, I write on the side and I have like the beginning of a, a book and the beginning of another book. And that was not the way that I approached things. And so that is some practical advice. And without getting an MFA, there are courses you can sign up for. There are more courses than ever right now because of Zoom. Alexander Chi is offering an autobiographical writing workshop in the upcoming month that if I was not so pregnant, I would take. And there are also freelance editors who work like writing coaches who you can pay. Again, it's not cheap, but it is definitely not graduate school. And they will ask you for pages and talk about your work with you. There are so many resources that can give you that feeling of structure Mm -hmm. and the feeling that this is serious. This isn't just something that I do on the side. This is something I'm willing to take a risk for. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. That was so helpful. Do you have any examples of, you know, what you said before, a book needs something larger? Do you have any examples of memoirs or or novels even or that have, I know I'm putting you on the spot with this, but like something larger that was inspiring to you when you were constructing Stray? Yeah, I think that all memoirs have something larger than if you look at Fierce Attachments by Vivian Gornick, which is a classic memoir example. She has an extremely fraught relationship with her mother, but that book is also about New York and women and women's voices in the 1940s and the Bronx and about finding your voice amid the voices of all of these women and all of this history. And then you take something like Danny Shapiro's Inheritance, which is about finding out that your father is not your father but it's also about writing and about her mother lying to her and about her need her entire life to dig. And finally knowing what she had been digging for, like there's always a deeper level. Yeah. Of, and in Stray, yes, it has the California component and your environment, but there's also a story going on there about how I be- ever convinced myself I could become a capable mother. And that's not the top story, number two story, number three, number, that's like a level eight story. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to look for that depth all the time. And sometimes in the first draft, it's often not there. You were just trying to say what happened. <laughs> You're just yeah. trying to get the words on the page. And then you go back and you say, oh, you know what? This kind of reads like the coming of age of an artist. And I'm reading, I just read a book called Luster by Raven Leilani that is very much like that. On the surface, it is a story of a 23-year-old woman having an affair with an older married man. And really it is about art becoming um, age in New York City. It's such an incredible book. It's a novel, but still, those things come to mind. There's something that Danny always says about writing of just touch your project daily. What are some of your like, and she's spoken a lot about process with, you know, what she does to kind of get the combination right to sit down and actually put in the hours. Do you have, I would love to know any of your writing rituals or routines from writing Stray or Sweet Bitter or just in general. Yeah, I am not a touch your project daily person. I write in binges and I often take lots of notes in one of my many notebooks or on a note card and then will dedicate a day and write for eight hours. Even with Stray, obviously I did that over the nine weeks and worked on weekends. I like to be suspended in the dream. There's such a dissonance for me between my private writing self and my public self that it's really hard for me to write for an hour in the evening calls for example Mm -hmm. I don't think I'll ever be able to do that I do read poetry daily and it is the most important part of my process more important than journaling or reading novels or reading memoirs or reading within the genre that I'm trying to learn which those are all important, but reading poetry is, it brings me back to 
the present moment, but also the illuminated moment, right? The, mm-hmm. It causes me to pay attention or to see life as a series of exposed flashes. And how well can you describe what's happening? How quickly can you bring the reader in? And how quickly can you, or slowly, can you reveal the meaning? And so that is one something that's very, very important to me. I wish I was a Touch Your Project Daily person. <laughs> I know. I love that. It's really helpful to hear. Okay. I have like a million more things to ask you, but maybe we can just do our final quick fire questions. What's the best thing you've eaten in the last week? Marcella Hazan's bolognese that my husband made. We ate it while we were camping. Mm-hmm. Favorite place in LA? Tex is an old school restaurant in Silver Lake that won't be here much longer. But I used mm-hmm. to go there and get Negronis. And it's a place that Eve Babbitts wrote about. And it's been very important to my friends. And I, it's been there for like a bajillion years and is filled with old people. And you would never want to eat the food there. But it's my favorite drinking spot in Los Angeles. Oh, I love that. Are there any other LA spots that you miss or you would recommend to a transplant like me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're mostly on the East side because that's where I live, but Botanica is my favorite restaurant and Kismet. I miss very much Tony's downtown in the arts district is like a real New York bar. And there aren't that many of them in Los Angeles, but it's like, dark and smells like urine and beer and they have real bartenders and it's not fancy cookbook in echo park yeah a really special little market and we use griffith park constantly i mean we have a kid but we we use the fields we use the playgrounds we use the hikes it's such a resource i feel really lucky to live close to it Oh, I love that. What's your greatest lesson on romantic relationships? Boundaries. Mm. Boundaries and not melting, trying to melt into the other person, really keeping your identity. Yeah, there's a line I wrote down from your book where you say, I think it's it's boundaries where we construct ourselves. Mm-hmm. I and I that. really believe that. What's your greatest lesson on motherhood? I know you talked about a bit today, but do you feel having the childhood that you have, how has being a mother impacted you? The biggest lesson that I've learned in 18 months is that it's all a phase. As much as you want to make definitive statements about what it means to be a mother and who your child is, everyone is changing constantly. And so I really try to take it day by day. And I can't compare it to my childhood because Julian is growing up with a different father. And so I often marvel at how whole his life is, but that's just going to be his experience because of who Matt is, but doesn't even have anything to do with me. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Okay. I know you have to go. The name of the show is Let It Out. So when I offer that to you, is there anything that you wish that I would have asked or that you never get to talk about that you still want to let out? 
Oh, no. I, I love that question. I wish there was, but no, I got to talk about all of my woo-woo meditation and the bars that I miss and <laughs> how much I wish I was drinking and taking mushrooms. So I think we covered it all. Okay, great. I wish we were doing all of those things together and writing. <laughs> Maybe someday now that, I'm, now that I'm here. Guess <laughs> where are you living? I'm in Highland Park right now in a sublet, but I just told my friend, I was like, I feel like I need to go to Laurel Canyon in the Laurel Canyon um, general store after reading this book to for like oh, a pilgrimage. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely should just go there and have an iced coffee on the porch. First of all, you'll see someone famous or crazy uh -huh. and it's such a vibe. And then drive around, like drive yeah. around the little fucked up streets. It's such a, I miss the canyon a lot, but I don't think I'll live there again. I yeah. did not end up loving that my backyard was constantly sliding into my house. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> that sounded like a lot. Well, honestly, the book has been like such a nice it was such a nice companion through this and I'm sad it's over, but it was so cool to talk to you. And genuinely I have like twelve thousand more things that I highlighted from Stray that I wanted to pick up on and little passages. So maybe, you know, next book, definitely come back and let's, let's keep in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to hearing the show. We end with taking a, letting out a deep breath together. Can we do that real quick? Of course. Okay. Inhale, let it out. <sighs> All right. That was my conversation with Stephanie Dandler. I genuinely loved Stray, the book, so much. If you haven't read Sweet Bitter or watched Sweet Bitter, highly recommend that too. Again, she's a great follow on social media. And join us for our book club to read a fiction book at the same time. <laughs> or, or you know, you can, you can read that one first and then read Stray or vice versa. But, you know, I've read them both recently, or I'm reading them both, and I was overlapping a little bit. And it was a delight. So I'm going to bring in my friend Helen to help me talk about these three workshops that I'm doing that I'm collaborating with her on. We're merging movement and journaling. So I'm going to let you guys hear that. And then at the very end, I'll tell you the emoji for this week's episode. And oh, yeah, so I'm moving to LA. <laughs> Forgot to tell you guys that, but it's accidental. I came the long way through Australia. I never flew from New York here. I maybe said that in this episode with Stephanie, but you know, cats out of the bag with that. I mean, it's new to me too, but <laughs> it was a really cool book to read being new to California. And as you heard, that really colors the story, which is really beautiful. So here's my little conversation with Helen. So Helen and I met in New York, like what, like four years ago or something? Something like that. Time has lost all meeting yeah. <laughs> recently. So. Helen was teaching this fitness class on the roof and it was nothing that I expected at all, but <laughs> so cool. Helen and I are going to collaborate on some workshops virtually this summer and after we met at that class that she taught, we I just remember running into you on the street at least twice. And I yes. feel like we just like kept in touch. We ran into each other several times in New York, right? 
yeah, at a bunch of different events and just, you know, obviously we stayed in touch on, on Instagram and found yeah. out we had like a million mutual friends. So it was like the universe kept pushing us together. <laughs> yeah. And then at the beginning of quarantine, sometime early on, we taught this really cool merging movement and writing together, which was, we just wanted to test it and try. And I've gone around being like, I'm so in my head and out of my body. And I think we have so much synergy in the way that we think about movement and bodies and fitness. And we just wanted to make something together. And that was our trial. And we've been thinking about how we wanted to continue that or collaborate again. And we had so many ideas that we thought we would do three workshops over this summer and came up with three topics. And one of them, the first one is anxiety, the next one is transitions, and then the last one will be about pain. These are things that we kept discussing and writing class. These topics really cover a lot of the things that we've been individually contemplating and collectively contemplating. Do you want to talk a little bit about each one? The anxiety workshop is going to be very interesting just because if you've ever dealt with anxiety, which I think is most people, you know that it's a very physical thing, but it, it, you're also very much in your head. You, you experience it in your body because of some, something that comes up in your head. So there's definitely something to work out about this relationship of getting your brain and your body to connect and, and cool off together and getting that calming fight or flight response to, to release and figure out where your mind goes when it's wandering and when we're trying to, to activate this parasympathetic nervous system response. And then transitions is going to be particularly interesting for me as a movement practitioner, because I often find, especially in, you know, Pilates classes that people want to move so quickly. And the hardest thing I have to explain to people who are new to Pilates is to slow down. And I find that this can also be really, really linked to pain and anxiety. You know, everything is always, always linked in real life, tend to want to rush through the difficult bits and using movement, using a challenging physical sequence is a really great metaphor for leaning into the, the physical discomfort, into the maybe emotional discomfort and learning to build some resilience through that. And I think that it's important to, to structure that with the mindset that we're thinking of it as building resilience, not like no pain, no gain, because that's a, a fine line that I think a lot of the toxic fitness out there markets themselves with. And it doesn't have to be like that. We can harness difficulty to get stronger, but it doesn't have to feel like it's punishment at all. Yeah, I love that. And I think I remember several years ago when I was moving to New York and I I said to my therapist, I was like, well, you know, growth and change and transitions are uncomfortable. It's just how they are. And she was like, yeah, sure. But like, what if they didn't have to be? Like, what if you could mm. cultivate ease within the discomfort? And I think that's something we can talk about through journaling and through movement in that workshop in particular of like finding the comfort within the discomfort. Things are pretty uncomfortable and how to be okay with in that find moments of okayness within the uncertainty. Yeah. And there's something that I say in a lot of my classes when 
we're doing a, a particularly physically challenging move, say like, where can you find softness at the same time? So we're not building stress and tension in places that we don't need it. It's so funny that we're doing a whole workshop with the title pain, but I think it's, it's a really interesting, it's not like we're going to like hold plank the whole time, you know? <laughs> yeah. We're not going to put you in pain. We're going to work, <laughs> work to help you be in charge of easing your own pain. That's really what's so special about the tools we're going to work through in that work workshop. It's essentially learning to self-soothe. So on the, on the physical layer, using self-myofascial release work with a tennis ball, with a lacrosse ball, with your foam roller, whatever tools you have to take care of any like loud pain spots and also to maintain a daily practice of maintenance so that you're able to prevent pain from getting to be that loud, achy, like aggressive. You and I have both worked through some minor and not so minor injuries. And it does take a blow to your self-esteem when you have limited capabilities and it, it, it makes your life challenging. And I, I mean, speaking as two super privileged, able-bodied women, that is a whole other layer to this conversation. But when you feel like you are not able to do the things that make you feel empowered and strong, like exercise is for me and I know for you, it can really throw you off track when you feel like you don't have those tools. So this workshop, it's not quite as, you know, high intensity. We're not going to be quote exercising. It's really more of a restorative workshop to be able to take care of yourself no matter what your situation is. Mm, Yeah, exactly. And I think the connection between movement and self-care and writing and connection with other people and having something on your calendar right now. You know, I I know I really miss going to fitness classes and it was something that I really at a point probably abused in New York of like just going so often someone who works by myself and spends most of my time by myself. It was nice to see familiar strangers and it was like where I invested a lot of my time and a lot of my money. And I don't have that anymore. Doing a video is great, but like I know Helen has these really cool classes. And so I I just make, and we hope to build community like over these three classes, keep people coming to all three of them. Or, you know, if one stands out to you more than the other, you can come to one of them. We're donating a portion of the proceeds to the Loveland Foundation, which is one of our favorite organizations. Therapy has been integral to me and my my own journey over the last few years. And something that I've always been keenly aware of is that not everyone has access to mental health support. And how can we integrate what we've been learning the last few weeks? It stood out as something that was a no-brainer for us. And Black, Indigenous, people of color sign up for free. We want to make this accessible and feel free to share this with your friends and sign up to one or all. We would love to have you. So the first one, Anxiety, is July 24th. Transitions is August 21st. And Pain is September 25th. It sounded like you were doing a voiceover. I really hope to see you guys at some of those workshops. That would be super cool. And at the book club, again, just email info at let it out with three T's. Follow us on social media. I love you. Thank you for being here. And the emoji for this week's episode, if you're listening all the way to the very bitter, sweet, bitter end is the cabbage because that is one of the recipe. I think there's a cabbage emoji. 
I'm pretty sure there is. So tweet that at Stephanie and me. Comment that on our Instagrams to let us know you're listening all the way to the end. And I'll talk to you guys next week with a new episode. This week's episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a wellness company that I've loved for a very long time. I've even had the founder, Taro, on the podcast. They're known for their delicious mushroom coffee. I've been starting my day with their ground mushroom coffee with lion's mane, and I really enjoy how it allows me to focus. (laughs) Mushroom coffee is more than just coffee. It contains lion's mane and supports productivity and creativity during a busy day. It's been really helpful for me. I'm writing a new kit actually. And it also includes chaga, which is the king of mushrooms. Chaga is a particularly great one right now because it supports our immune system and helps it to maintain its function, which is always helpful. You're probably thinking, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? But I can guarantee you it tastes just like regular coffee, not at all like mushrooms. I actually really love the taste. Mushroom coffee is also really easy on my gut and doesn't leave me feeling jittery or crashing after. All Four Sigmatic products are organic, vegan, and gluten-free. Every single batch is tested in a third-party lab for heavy metals, allergens, bad bacteria, yeast, molds, pesticides to ensure their purity and safety. So you know that you are getting the highest quality coffee and mushrooms possible. Best of all, Four Sigmatic stands behind their products unconditionally with a 100% money back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. I've worked out an exclusive offer for Let It Out podcast listeners to receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. Now is the perfect time to try Four Sigmatic's best-selling mushroom coffee or any of their delicious products. Just go to foursigmatic.com slash Katie and use the code Katie at checkout. That's K-A-T-I-E. That's foursigmatic.com slash Katie. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash Katie to receive 15% off your order. Thanks, Four Sigmatic. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people. Explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and get lost in creativity. Skillshare offers memberships with meaning. With so much to explore, real projects to create, and support fellow creatives, Skillshare empowers you to accomplish real growth. Skillshare offers creative classes designed for real life with all the circumstances that come with it. These lessons can help you stay inspired, express yourself and introduce you to a community of millions at a time with so many important conversations happening in our world your voice is more essential than ever explore classes to unlock your creativity for social good skillshare has classes on freelancing entrepreneurship interior design cooking graphic design photography music so much more you guys there's literally like so many classes on there one skillshare class that i'm really excited to take is creative personal writing with past podcast guest ashley c ford who i love it's such a great class and one of the exercises she has you revisit a song from when you were young and use that as a writing prompt Mari Andrew, another guest that I've had on Let It Out, also has a class called Drawing and Self-Discovery that I'm really excited to check out next. Skillshare is incredibly affordable, especially when compared to other really pricey in-person classes and workshops. The annual subscription is less than $10 a month. I love how accessible it is. And best of all, for us, 
it's even more affordable. Start with two months free of a premium membership and explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash let it out. That's two months free at Skillshare.com slash let it out. 